For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday night, and <clears throat> you know, I almost forgot. I uh, I want to do one also um, for the yard site of, to uh, mention yes, the yard site yesterday of the father of Batsal Stefanski, that was the soccer mayor. Um, Stefanski, who I did not know, but as I said before, I can tell a little bit by the family, and he wanted in his honor to uh, sponsor some Divrei Torah and Divrei History and things that nature. It's the Yisachar Ben Baruch. Um, and <clears throat> I was thinking now, this week is going to be, as you know, coming up Ches uh, Teves. We all know that Sarbat Teves is around the corner, as soon as Hanukkah is over, the beginning next week. And we all know, <clears throat> I'm sure most people listening to this uh, podcast are aware from the, uh, the what do you call it, the sleepless, you say, that it's like three uh, fast days rolled into one. There's a, there was a fast day originally on the 8th of Tavis, <clears throat> and on the 9th of Tavis, and on the 10th of Tavis. Actually, the 10th came first, but it doesn't matter, because um, what we're talking about over here is uh, the phenomenon... <laughs> of three distinct tragedies that occur in three fast days. But, of course, it's not Ramadan. You can't have people fast three days in a row, even if they eat the night in between. Uh, it's hard enough. Believe me, I'm in the rabbi business. As soon as comes any fast day, my goodness. You know, um, <laughs> everybody's looking for heter. Now, I understand that, you know, I, and and many people need it because of health. I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, but uh, many do not. And we live in such an era that, you know, if you tell people you have to skip lunch today, it's like a major imposition. Once upon a time long ago, the Hasidim out there, I don't mean the modern Hasidic, I mean the pre-modern Hasidic, prided themselves on fasting, on fasting, on fasting. And, you know, it didn't bother them. The more it bothered them, the better it was, so to speak. So we have different sensibilities today. The point I'm getting at is that there was a distinct fast on the 8th, the 9th, and the 10th. The first one is the 8th of Tavis, which is right around the corner. If today is the 4th, of Tavis, so let's see, Thursday is 5, Friday is 6, Saturday is 7, Sunday is 8, I guess that's right, I think that's right, so Saturday and Sunday would be the anniversary of the Septuagint in, in rabbinic thought, meaning Melch Yovan Insani Licht of Dasemis, as it says in the Slichos, which I think many are familiar with, and this uh, recalls to us the well-known incident of the translation of the Bible into Greek, back in the time of Ptolemy II, which in the two, who lived, who was ruling from the 280s to the 260s, something like that, BCE. And, um, well, hold on one second. Sorry about that. The, um, so we're talking about the translation, as I said before, which was either famous or notorious, and that's the point I want to talk about, because obviously there were those Jews, I repeat Jews, we thought it's a positive thing, and then there were those Jews, like the rabbis in Israel, thought it's a negative thing. And you put him Lakan and put him Lakan. Uh, there are arguments on both sides. One thing is for sure that in Jewish tradition, <clears throat> since we follow the Ghazal, so days of days became a fast day, and they say the world became dark that day. That fits in with the description of Yavon as Koshech. And they made a whole big deal out of it. Okay, by contrast, and I know I've spoken about this before, other Jews 
wrote the um, letter of Aristeus to Pilocrates, which is one of the books of the uh, Pseudepigrapha. I know I did it one time or another. I can't remember. There's so many podcasts uh, in which the whole story, the translation of the Bible into Greek is portrayed in a positive way as a positive achievement. Um, even though the book is written, it's pseudepigraphic. You know, pseudo means it's fake. And by fake, it means it was written without question thousands of years ago when the base of Mishra was standing. And there are descriptions, by the way, of somebody visiting the base of Mishra at that time, which are fascinating. But the idea that it was written by a guy, as it purports to be, to another guy talking about how the king um, commissioned this translation, and it was all done in a rather positive way, uh, that people think are pseudepigraphic scholars. And they'll say, really, a Jew wrote it. And very cleverly, he put the guy fictionally as if somebody was not Jewish was writing it to give it a greater bang. Um, there's no question that the translation of the Bible in the Greek, and I made this point in the past, uh, opens a new chapter in, in, in the history, uh, the cultural history of the Western world. Because the Greeks at that time uh, had their own culture, and it certainly was untainted by uh, <clears throat> Jewish ideas, and now it will be. Uh, and the two are not the same. <clears throat> so, in theory, you can have Yaftalahim Liefes, Yishkin Bali Shem. In theory, it is possible to have the best of both worlds, so to speak, right? And that's the ideal, as they say to the term, Derek Hartz, or something like that. The ideal. Ideal means it doesn't exist, but you strive for it. Uh, but in point of actual fact, it was much more complicated because, for one thing, it facilitated the penetration of Greek stuff into Jewish and the other way around. The effect of the other way around was eventually the rise of Christianity. The effect of Greek into Jewish was the rise of the Hellenists and later Sadducim and things of that nature, which gives the Second Temple Judaism such a weird character called a sectarianism. You don't find in the Middle Ages uh, much of the sectarianism. You had the Karaites, that's about it. And they were successfully marginalized. So for most part, wherever Jews in the Middle Ages and immediate post-Middle Ages, uh, they all were on the same page. I mean, I know there are different between Ashkaz and Sephard and all that, but Basically, the, the, the Hashkafa was pretty much the same. Uh, in the Bayashani period, it wasn't that way at all. And you had very sectarian groups. And they're arguing over what is Judaism, and what is the Torah, and what is really the Mesorah, and that the, whoever doesn't agree is the heretic. So I want you to understand, to the Tzedukim, we are the heretics. It, may, it should be very clear. Um, and then you had Isim, other sectarian groups. And if you read Josephus, Be'ian, You'll find there's all kind of nut groups running around. I'm very serious. You know, all kind of nut groups, messianic groups, whatever. As this Tzimishkite that eventually took the Jews into their suicidal decision to attack Rome, uh, the Jewish revolt, and uh, we all know the consequences of that. So the translation of the Bible into Greek is interesting in that regard. But I want to attack it from a different angle. And that is Nogea down to nowadays. Because, as I think I met, mentioned before, I think... <coughs> Whatever you want to say about the Septuagint, <coughs> and however much you want to fast for that, <coughs> in other words, when the starts of Batavis, you do all three, eighth, ninth, and tenth, the eighth being the Septuagint, uh, you all listen to a Septuagint. After all, this podcast is not in Hebrew, but in English, and everybody's got their art scroll, nobody says, that's Trafe, and everybody got similar to Feldheim and all that sort of thing, 
right? And Steinsaltz and whatever, you know, whatever your thing. Chabad has a whole literature of translation in other languages. I mean, the Tanya is translating other languages for crying out loud. The Zohar. So, um, we live in an era which which could be called, in terms of cultural history, the Septuagint era. And I'll say more than that. For most Jews, I shouldn't say most, for many Jews, without the English or the other translation of French, Spanish, whatever it is, they'd have no shyness to anything because the rabbinic texts are impenetrable. Uh, the Gemara, the Mepharshim, especially the Chronim, you know, it ain't easy. And unless you have what Solomon Shechter called a rather one-sided education for a number of years in your life, there's no way to, to, to access that. And in early generations, <coughs> nobody did. Which therefore means, <coughs> excuse me, which therefore means that historically speaking, Judaism has always been an elitist, two-tiered society, if you think about it. And I would even say that's the yeshivish ideal, the rabbinic ideal. A two-tiered society, the scholars and everybody else. The Hamonab. Uh, there's always the scholars, a few that know. And then there's the Hamonab. In between, there's some group that they know epis something. Some a little more, some a little less. But there ain't too many Moshe Feinsteins running around. You know what I'm saying? There aren't too many there. There's not too many Shlomo's on our box running around. That's the few. And the whole culture is built around a certain elitist idea that you follow the scholars because they know what God wants better than anybody else. Because uh, they can read all those books that you can't read. <clears throat> now, the enemy of the elitism is translation. Get it? Uh, if I can't make head or tails out of what I'm looking at, and somebody comes along with a translation, and now I can. And so I've broken that, you know, uh, a piece. And, you know, I too can access what the elite can access. So all of a sudden, I might not have the respect for them. And, <clears throat> indeed find many places in Chazal where they worry about such things. For example, you know, Maisa, uh, Yehuda, Vatamar, Nicaragua, Targum. You know, there's certain parts of the Bible that we do not want the masses to access. You have to be a member of the elite. You have to be learned in order to, to understand the, 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 the uh, what shall I say, the Tashtit, the, the background of the whole thing. Who Yehuda was, you know what I'm saying? Who the Shvatim were. If you don't come in with those kinds of uh, attitudes, then we don't want you to read this at all. <clears throat> Nicaragua means they made a, a, a rule that they're going to read the parish of the week. Okay, fine. That's bad enough. But Matargum, <clears throat> that the Velt should understand what is actually being read when it seems like Yehuda and Tamar is not a positive story. <clears throat> you know? And for the Hamunam, you're not going to be able to explain to them, oh, this is what really happened, that happened. Because they won't believe it. They'll be skeptical, just like people are nowadays. They say, you really think, Kofo Shade or something like that? It, it's, it's a culture thing. The masses have a culture. The elite has a different culture. And it's very hard to <coughs> uh, transpose cultural norms elsewhere. Somebody today went to an elite Ivy League type of uh, prep school and that sort of thing. I mean, they just see the world and, and, and have a different culture. Hi, they're American and you're American. And they talk English and you talk English. It ain't the same thing. You know what I mean? And they don't view things in the same way. And they don't evaluate matters. <coughs> assign value to it in the same way that the Hamunam does. Um, every once in a while, there was an uprising against this. In American culture, it's been Donald Trump, for example, in recent years. But generally speaking, you know, the elites are the elites, and they see things through their way. 
Um, sometimes they try to dominate the discourse. I think they always try to dominate the discourse. Uh, but in Judaism, we say like this, they should dominate the discourse. In other words, I want to hear, you know, what Ramosha Feinstein has to say on the subject. I am interested in the way the Vilna Gaon defines the things. Because he's bigger than I am. He understands it better than I do. But that requires a culture of deference. And translations kind of muck that up. Because if I come into the room and I see, like I said, Yosef, <clears throat> I saw not long ago, because I was doing my Saturday night lectures, about the politics in the 1990s in Israel, and I found Ari Derry is saying that he brought, I'm talking about in, early, in 1992, when Yitzhak Rabin won the election for prime minister, and he wanted the Shas to be part of the coalition, which they did join in the beginning, before they had a falling out. And if I remember correctly, part of the process was that Ari Derry brought Yitzhak Rabin, who was secular, but held secular, to pay a, a call of some sort, on Avad Yosef. And he walked in, the, and he's describing, he walked in the house of Avad Yosef, he's like freaked out because he saw a million books. And he said, yeah, he read all these books? <laughs> you know what I mean? In other words, Yitzhak Rabin was a highly intelligent person. He was the chief of staff of the army, he was an ambassador, all the rest of it. This particular type of intellectual knowledge he did not have. He was a chilani, a kibbutznik, and so forth. And Yiddish guy is kind of foreign to him. I, I understand that. But the point is, when he saw all those books, then he figured like this. Military, I know. Talmud, forget about it. <laughs> you know? This guy, he's the king of that. Uh, because ain't no way I'm ever going to read, let alone understand and memorize all those books. Yes, he was exposed to an entire culture. So that's an example of, um, of Derek Harris, first of all. And second, what's the example of an elitist kind of culture. we, You and I live in a very funny time now, and I'll explain what I mean in a second. So the undermining of that is translation. As long as the books are closed books, and there's no way anybody outside the elite circles can even access those books, the greater the prestige and the mystique to the elite. Uh, when the people can access this and all the rest, it, it becomes a complicated question. You understand? And most importantly, or most detrimentally, people start to think they know, at least some do, and that's even worse, because they know a little bit, and knowing a little bit is the road to hell, you know? Uh, and they'll say like this, well, I can read the Gemara also, I can read this also, I know this as well, and so on and so forth. It is possible even, I don't know this for sure, because none of us do, who exactly were the Tzedukim, the Sadducees, we, we don't know exactly. There are many theories about it among historians, and from have their theories, all the rest of it. Libby Imerly, at the Tzedukim, the Sadducees, in a broad spectrum, are a consequence of the Septuagint, or the phenomenon of translating the Bible into Greek. Once you translate the Bible into Greek, and it doesn't necessarily mean the exact translation of Septuagint that has survived today, the LXX, but whatever ver variation there was, then all of a sudden, this guy thinks he's just as smart as Shem ben Shetach. Because Shem ben Shetach knows the Bible, and so do I. He read it in, in Hebrew with certain Hebrew kanach, and I read it, you know, in Greek translation with, with, with that kanach. And it seems, you know, like I said before, I think, you can't do more than that, I think that the rise of the Sadducees and similar groups have to do with the fact that the Bible is now translated into, a, into Greek, and therefore, everybody could access it, even though 
from the point of view of the elites, that's not really calling accessing it because the Inceptagon is very superficial and non-comprehensive and so forth. So it caused a lot of inner trouble within Judaism, plus it also caused trouble as far as the rise of Christianity is concerned. If what I just said is true, then you can understand why it came up in the rabbinic tradition to declare that day a fast day. Right? Notice what I'm saying is, it loved Afka that the year they translated the Bible to Greek, the rabbis in Israel went nuts and declared a, a, a fast day forever. Um, it could be like Hanukkah, the Shona Cheres Kavua Halviantiv. They waited a year or two or 20 or 100. And it could be, that, and I think, in other words, I think what I'm about to say is correct. Uh, you can't know, but I believe so, that the, uh, that the what do you call it, the, the whole phenomenon over here is that once upon a time it was a holiday among the uh, Hellenistic Jews. I mean, not the Hellenistic Jews in Israel, but in Alexandria. If you read the book of Aristeus, it seems like they declared that day that they went into the Nile, washed their hands, and translated the Torah into uh, a holiday. Um, eventually, maybe in the wake of the Maccabean wars or persecutions or something like that, the rabbis in Israel said, no, that day is actually a, a dark day, a fast day. We very misstubborn makes sense that the the time, the dating of days of Tavis as a fast day came much later or certainly not right away after the actual event in the 280s, 270s, 260s BC. Probably 100 years later. That's what I think. And it would fit very well with the whole idea of the Maccabean Wars and Hanukkah. You're creating new holidays to celebrate the victory of the Greeks and you're creating new fast days to uh, condemn the uh, invasion of the Greeks, so to speak, into our culture, the translation of the Bible into Greek, which uh, is a very interesting kind of uh, approach. And it would fit like a glove, the rising uh, struggles between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Prussian Tzedukim, which so tragically characterized and tore apart the Maccabean kingdom, the Hasmonean kingdom, under John Hyrcanus and the others. Because if you remember, Yochan Koengadol, Brahmos Ish, Kol Yom Avayim Ben Prussian, Sophiam Ben Tzedukim. And it's a big story in Josephus. He has all the uh, the details about it. The Gemara has its version. They're quite similar. And uh, Yochan Horkinus, you know, obviously eventually became a Tzaduki. Could very well be because, you know, he read the Bible and he can see it also. And if you read the Bible for the Greek translation or any kind of literalness, without taking certain things into context, you too can be misakin you know what I mean? You too can make your own holidays or new dinim or anything like that. And hence, that would explain the different uh, interpretations and therefore practices that characterize the fight between the Prussian and Sadukim throughout the Second Temple period. Now, here's the funny th- here's the funny outcome. What they did was translate the Chumash, the the the, the, the Torah of Iksav, and famously not the Torah of Apeh. So the Torah of Apeh, as you know, kind of flourished independently uh, on its own. Obviously, it's connected to Torah Shabbat of course. But having done that, of course, now we get real and we say, you know, real in the yeshivas don't learn Tanakh or anything like that. Not really. Uh, it's only the unusual types, like your Malbim types, that get into the, you know, the Chumash and all that, in terms of the Dikduk and the Iyun and the Ebenezer types and that sort of thing. And so, in point of actual fact, there was a divorce in the centrality of Jewish culture between the Torah Shabbat on the one hand, Torah Shabbat on the other, even though lip services paid to both. There were, and and that went on for quite a while. And then we see something interesting. 
starting, I guess, with Rashi, uh, who, you know, uh, kind of reversed the Septuagin sort of thing, which is, you're going to read, if you can follow with Rashi, you're going to read the text of the Tershavik through the lenses of the Tershavik, because that's what Rashi does. Uh, and he was wise enough not to try to do the whole thing. Rashi is not identical with, uh, you know, the Torah Shlema of uh, Menachem Kasher. It's highly selective and so forth, but he sure gets the point across. And when you read the Pesukim, uh, the way Rashi interprets it, you get the Torah Shavuot angle on it, which is why Klal Yisrael, starting from the death of Rashi, who died in the early 1100s, uh, enthusiastically adopted the idea of, of tying together Chumash with Rashi, because <clears throat> that way you're reading the Torah Shavuot through the lens of the Torah Shavuot which flips the Septuagint. You understand? The Septuagint was saying you can do the Toshavik Sav and have no connection whatsoever to any to- oral tradition. It's the, you know, that the Septuagint is the epitome of that. You can just read the, the, the text on its own uh, integrity. And whatever you come up, in other words, <clears throat> and what you come up may po- probably have nothing to do <clears throat> with what the rabbis say in the Talmudic literature. Uh, Rashi goes the other way around. And ever since Rashi, there's been the rise and fall of different approaches that people want to have to how much you want to get into the Chumash on the one hand and how much Torah Shavuot you want to bring into it and the other way around. Taken to extremes, there's nothing wrong with what I'm saying. In other words, taken to extremes, uh, you have Yonas and Abishits and the Prussians and that sort of thing, in which case, you know how it goes, um, Yehuda held like uh, the Rambam, but Tomer held like the Ravid. You know what I'm saying? Yosef held, you know, uh, like the Chubas Arashba and Paro held face like you know, like uh, you know the Meiri, that that way of doing it, which is a lot of fun, but it's it, it's and it's always been popular by the way, but it's popular precisely because, not that you're saying this is the necessary the emis, in the in the psukim, uh, but because they're saying look, we are utterly subjecting the Torah of on the one hand. To domination by the Torah Shabbal Peh, and that's where it should be. And that's the proper arrangement. And there are a million Chazals along these lines, you know, uh, why did Hashem hold the mountain over the head? Oh, for the Torah Shabbal Peh. Uh, what does it mean, Kimu B'Kiblu? Like Tosa says, oh, it's the Torah Shabbal Peh. You see, it's always like that. Um, so it's a question of Dom's one and the other. That's why um, I would suggest uh, in in uh, there always was a strain among the from of what we call kosher translations, just just not a lot. Uh, what kind of translations would you have in the ancient times? Well, they, they say that there were a couple of uh, from translations, not the Septuagint, which were not um, banned or held as uh, fast days like Chesbatavis. And the reason is because they were art scrolls. They were under <clears throat> the permission of the Chachamim, who obviously must have, in their Greek translations, put in, like Rashi t- sort of style, the Torah um, Shabbat kind of uh, translations in it, even though they were not faithful literally to the Hebrew. They didn't want to be. And so they talk about the fact that there was Achilles and Theodosian and people like that in... Um, Bayashani period and post Bayashani period, who seem to have translated the the Bible, the the Chumash, into Greek, but in an art scroll way. And uh, there's a whole confusion whose uncle is who's Achilles, 
But the Gemara does say that you know that that the translation of Achilles uh, was done under Bishu and Belezer, and there are other uh, things like that. So um, that would mean that just like art school arose to knock out Steinsaltz or knock out Sansino, that sort of thing. So uh, you know the Theodosian or Achilles arose to knock out the Septuagin, which it did a pretty good job in doing. Um, well, maybe I'm wrong. Nothing has really survived of Achilles or Theodosian or, or a couple of the others. Not that I know of. Anyway, maybe, you know, a line here, a line there. I don't believe so. Uh, but we know that they were around and they were used. Talking about the Greek translations. When you get to the post-ancient times, I mean, they never bothered translating Latin because no Jew spoke Latin. That was the language of Western Empire. And there were no scholars there. Uh, the East is where most Jews live. Eastern Mediterranean, they're the language of the Greek, even on the Roman Empire, and later into the Byzantine Empire. Now, um, when you get to the Middle Ages, again, there were some translations, but really of the type uh, calculated to, you know, uh, subject the Toshib except to the Toshib Uh Just off the top of my head, you think of the Yiddish translation like Tenoren and that sort of thing. That's exactly what they're all into. Once again, the spirit of the Septuagint was not dead, and it, it re- revived itself in the Karayim. What does the Karayim say? Chibsa They knew enough to read the Hebrew, and they say that's the way to go, and heck with the, the Torah Shavapeh, meaning with the Talmudic tradition, which claims to be the Torah Shavapeh. No one said they can read the Chumash without any context. But just because you, just because I say there is definitely a context, doesn't automatically prove that what you guys say is the uh, context. You know, um, that's that happens a lot. That's a false argument. Now, uh, the post uh, medieval period is very interesting. Let me put it this way: starting 18th century, so the Jews is our Moses Mendelssohn. I made it with somebody. To do Moses Mendelssohn one of these days, we haven't uh, finalized it all, but um, that may be coming down the line. Uh, you find, uh, and listen closely, I'm about to say that when Mendelssohn translated the Chumash into German, into good German, uh, this was uh, criticized by Notabi Huda and others. But the same Notabi Huda uh, gave a haskama to this other guy who no one's ever heard of, who issued a Frumi translation into German. It wasn't elegant or anything like that. It was much more along the lines that I was just talking about. But it was subjecting the Torah to the domination of the Torah Shabbat, which, of course, no note of you had hardly approved. In the period after Mendelssohn, he died in 1785. So I would say ever since then, it's very interesting in terms of Septuagint, because I would say from 1785 maybe as far as 1985, that might be a little bit too much, but for 1785, let's say 1885, something like that, Ruba de Ruba of the translations that emerged in the Bible were in Septuagint style. That is to say, there were many translations in the 19th century by Jews of the Bible into German, French, and other languages, English, uh, but they were usually, uh, as we say, Pashup shot, and not really dependent on um, the Torah Shabbat. Isaac Leeser was an exception. 
but uh, most of the others not. You probably have no idea what I'm talking about today because all these translations have fallen into the sewage. Nobody's interested in them. Uh, used to be big reform rabbis and people and, and, and scholars and stuff like that. Uh, the exception that comes to my mind would be Sam Sarifla Hirsch, who in the 1870s did exactly that, translated the Bible, the Chumash, into German, but with the idea of subjecting it to the Torah Shabbat Peh, just read Hirsch, you know, the upstairs as well as the downstairs. That's his vart. You get it? You know, he's he's seeking to displace what he considered to be the, you know, the, the septuagints of his time, the trade ones. When you get to the 20th century, it's very interesting because um, there certainly were a genre, a big genre, of septuagint-type translations. Uh, some of them were very good. <laughs> you know, I told you, the good old Shalag that I have in the house, uh, he's as trafe as a pig, but he's got a very good translation, very good explanation. Uh, it's, you can't use it, though, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's written very well. Uh, and you had these other kinds of things like that. There were even people who tried to make the Septuagint sound from, that would be like Kasudo and all that. And I, I don't mean cynically, they really did. Uh, but then when you get to 1985, 200 years after the death of Mendelssohn, that would coincide with Art Scroll and Feldheim and that sort of thing. In which case, what happens? The yeshiva world turns out to be the only um, vibrant uh, group within Judaism by then for sure. And the utility of Septuagint, which is people want to be able to read the Hebrew and they can't read the Hebrew, this certainly applied to the Art Scroll audience, uh, FFB as well as BT, they couldn't read the Hebrew. And they want to read the Hebrew. And certainly when it gets to Chazal, they can't read the, the, the Talmud. And they want to. And Kabbalah Khamer, the Yerushalmi. Uh, so the utility side is there. But um, they're doing it with very firm lenses. You understand? In other words, so since they're doing it very firm lenses, so instead of the translations undermining and 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 uh, and undermining the hierarchy of the Elites versus the others, the translations that have emerged out of what I call art school, I'm just using that term in general to cover the whole wide area, have had a very interesting result. And and the result is, as far as I can see, that even the person who goes through whole shots with the art school, and I know some people like that, I'm a neighbor, you know, but it has the effect in our lifetime, the more you know, the more you you realize what you don't know. You get it? Let's say a person really went through, he's one of the diligent type of guys, he went to the whole art school of Gemara. Well, that's quite an enterprise. I mean, all the footnotes, my lord. And therefore, you pick up a lot of information. But you realize you're basically scratching the surface, so to speak. Notice there's, there's, a, there's a lot more out there than that. It's in the nature of a text that's going to be limited. I myself used to write for art school long ago, and I... Um, how should I put it? I, um, had these long footnotes that smashed Pericalic, and they cut them down in half or by two-thirds, and I understand why. You know, you ain't got enough room. You understand? Somebody asked me once years ago in the locker room, he said, they want to get my full notes, you know, something like that. Uh, I remember it was kind of funny. But, let me see. The more you know, the more you realize you only scratch the surface. If a guy says, here's what Chaim Brisker says, 
It makes you fully aware, man, if not for this art scroll, I wouldn't know what that kind of brisket's at. You know, that's, that's beyond my pay grade. You follow? So it enhances the stature of the elite. Because this guy actually can read Rukhaim. That guy actually can read Rukhaim and understand it. I can only read the article Precy of it. And Kahena Kahena. And that's ten times as much so when it comes to Yushalmi. And so, it's very interesting that things have flipped. Instead of a Septuagint undermining, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, charisma of the elite, it enhances it. So there were many people afraid that you know, when the art school comes out now, and again, I'm using that term generically, all the different translations are coming all the time. I mean, for crying out loud, I have a Shar Gilgulim from the Rizal here in English next to me. So you think, oh boy, that'll undermine the mystique and all that. It actually enhances it. It's very interesting. It enhances it because it makes you aware of that world out there. It's like a Yitzhak Rabin moment, so to speak. Imagine the guy, for example, who has no background. and But nevertheless, he becomes BT or something like that. And he's a good guy, and he plugs away, and he goes through the whole, like I say, and, and I know one or two people like that, goes through the whole shots. That's quite an achievement, okay? And this is a very smart person. He's being intellectual. See, he understands the footnotes, makes it his business to understand them. Um, and he sees the whole thing, and he's very good, you know? He's very good. Boy, is he aware of he's just scratching the surface. Boy, is he aware there's a universe of intellectuality out there that he never heard of before. And now that he's heard of it, he realized it's beyond him. Because very unlikely, the person I'm talking about was going to go back to Yeshiva and learn all the Rav Shimon's and all the Baruch Bears and, and, and all the other sorts of things. You know, Rav Shimon Rizovsky, uh ain't happening. He should be proud of himself. And he is proud of himself, deservedly so. They went through the whole art scroll. I mean, you know, that's, that's not a clinicite, right? It's not a clinicite. And so it ends up, as I say before, creating, playing a different role. Today, and I leave you with this, um, and I got no money in the art school now, you know. So he said, today, would they make a fast day with the day they started doing the art school translations? Or would they make a holiday? Um, and again, uh, Feldheim or, or Steinsaltz or uh, Masifta, you know, whatever you, whatever shitty book you want. Um, would they make it a, 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 a negative day or a positive day? I think it would be a positive day because it opened up so much to so many people. And as just as importantly, if not more importantly, it made them aware of how large the Torah is, how little they know, Aruch Meretz Midah, you know, and deeper than the Yom. And, and that is a kind of a mystical respect uh, for Jewish scholarship that has kept us going, you know, through many centuries. Uh the, you know, the, it's it's not something of access to the game, although to some degree it's going to be like now because it's all in English. But um, uh, they didn't have this in any kind of hard and concrete way hundreds of years ago. At least so it seems to me. So this anniversary of Ches Tebis, uh raises very interesting historical questions to my mind about the nature of elitism, the nature of Torah and Torah Peb, um the nature of those who say nothing should be translated in the heck with the Hamonam versus those who say, no, the Hamonam is also somebody. And as a matter of fact, if it's done right, this will actually in- enhance the respect that the scholars hold in the eyes of the Hamonam. Anyway, that's what I wanted to say. I want to thank Mishpacha Savansky once again 
for uh, sponsoring this in memory of their father. His yard site was yesterday. I think it's the fourth yard site. As they say, the Shamash Avaliyah. With that, I bid you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.